If you have your Bibles, we're ready for Mark chapter 10 today. We finished half of it last week, so we're going to pick up where we left off. I am going to back up and just do a little bit of a um, catch up from last week. So um, the gospel writer Mark. Mark is... Um, He's the youngest of the gospel writers. He was like the teenager of the group that, um, you know, was like the Snapchat kid. You know, he didn't want to write articles or blogs. It's just he could do it in a, in a, in a Snapchat or 30 words. And he just, he, it's the shortest gospel. He doesn't give us any history. He doesn't give us any explanation. He doesn't tell us any background. He just tells us what happened. And the whole, the whole book just reads like, and there's this word you find in there, then and then and next and then. Because he just goes right through it. He starts Gospel of Mark chapter 1 verse 1 with a story of something that Jesus is doing and who he's healing and touching. And it just goes like that all the way through. Just boom, 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 boom. Here we are in chapter 10. We've already gotten to the end of Jesus' life. Jesus in John chapter 10 is going to begin his final march to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, it will be the triumphant entry a week before he's going to die on the cross. And so the, the, the writer, and then one of the things we've highlighted with the gospel of Mark, Mark tells us this little thing that I've asked you guys to highlight, underline, keep your, your, your eye on as we go through the gospel of Mark. He says, and Jesus taught them teaching, taught and everywhere we see it. And he's constantly pointing out this part of Jesus's life that everywhere Jesus went, he taught them. You know, when we went through the gospel of Luke, for whatever reason, the way the Holy Spirit inspired the, the writer of Luke, you see there where Luke is constantly telling us that Jesus removed himself and prayed, that Jesus was praying, that Jesus got up early and prayed, 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 prayed. And then Mark says, taught, 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 taught. Do you know what the word Christian means? It's two words. First one is Christ. And the second one is Shan, Christian, Shan, Christian. Shan, that, that, that little T-I-A-N, I guess the T kind of gets shared on both sides of that word. The, the Shan means like. So Christian means Christ-like. So if you call yourself a Christian and you want to be a Christian, another word that we use that Caleb shared, follower, a follower of Jesus, that I want to follow Jesus. We're going to see in Mark chapter 10, two different times where that term is used, where people follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. And so if we're going to be like Christ, then naturally we have to do what he does. We want to do what he does. We want to find joy in, in doing the things that, that he did. And so he oftentimes prayed. Whenever he had an opportunity, he taught, he taught, he taught. I always hear, hear my pastor ringing in my ear. And being a young pastor and being raised up and trained up, he always told me, and he always taught me, and it's a, it's a Calvary thing too, but you know, it's, it's really just where he was and what was in his heart. And he said, you know, if you get an opportunity to teach, just teach the Bible. Just teach the Word. Teach the Word. Just pick a chapter, pick a section, and teach a chapter when you get an opportunity to teach. And, and, and that's kind of just been the way we've done it. And you know, it's pretty easy. You know, you listen to some of these preachers today and it's like, Man, they're, they're pretty good, but there's no way none of us could do what they're doing. But when Pastor Chuck started, he would just read a couple verses and say a few things about it. Read a couple verses, say a few things about it. And everybody looked at Pastor Chuck at the beginning days of Calvary. And they're like, I can do that. I could, I could read a couple verses and say what I know about them. You guys know who Pastor Raul Reese is? They, they said, that, you know, what you do is you just you read a verse and then you say all you know about that verse. And then you read the next verse and you just tell everybody all you know about that verse. And, and they say, that's why Raul Reese can teach the whole Bible like in an hour. <laughs> Just kidding. So <laughs> what's crazy, though, let me let me take a little rabbit trail. Please forgive me. Um, 
I, I'm getting ready to teach the men's retreat back at Joshua Springs. And so I'm super excited. I'm, I'm super nervous too. It's like, it's like, it's like the big, it's like my big opportunity, my big chance. I've been back one time since I moved to Tooele and I, I taught on a Sunday morning at, at, at Joshua Springs at all services, but haven't really been back to, to, to teach much. And now I've been gone for three years and, and get this opportunity to go back and do the whole men's retreat by myself and um, teach three sessions and, um, you know, probably 200 men and um, just super excited. You know, people want to know what's going on with me, what's happening up here. And I want to do a good job. I want to bring the word. I want to see something happen. And so you think like all this training and this stuff I got, like, like dad taught me, when you get an opportunity to teach, you just pick a chapter, you teach a chapter of the word and I'm going to go back and I'm just going to teach a chapter of the word, right? No, that's not what I'm doing. (laughs) That's not the way God led it. I'm teaching a topical retreat. I've never done it this way before. So I I think this rabbit trail is to say, you guys, please pray for me. my brother, I talked to my brother and, and, and working out some details yesterday. And he's like, so what, what's the passages that you're going to be teaching so I can read them? And I want to read them and, you know, kind of go through it before you get here. And I said, well, uh, I don't know yet. <laughs> like, what do you mean you don't know yet? I said, well, I kind of got like the, the vision, the idea. I know the message God's given me, but, you know, and, and I, I've, I've known for three months. So I've been taking notes for three months. I've been praying. I've been asking God. And every time, you know, I'll write some stuff down. I give this little notepad on my iPad. And so I'll open up my iPad. I'll write down what I feel like God told me in that session. And, and so I got like seven pages of these notes that, and the, the idea, but I still don't even have the first message. And so I was getting a little bit nervous. And so God gave me on Friday night, just the first starting point of the first message. So I, I kind of got an idea of where I'm going, but who knows? So you guys keep me in prayer. Keep the men in prayer that are going to be at the retreat, please. And one of the things that I, we want to do that is my heart is that, you know, any event that we do, that's, that we're going to put a Tooele Springs stamp on it. You know, if this is your home church and that's what your stamp says, then, you know, we want to bathe it in prayer. We want to cover it in prayer. The women's ministry that's going to meet on Tuesday night. The men's group that's going to meet Friday night. The, the, the children's ministry. The youth ministry. You know, we're, we're, we're asking you guys to buy in as far as praying for the things that we do here. That everything we do. The outreach to share the gospel with the lost. That it's all covered in, in prayer. And so, we really covet your prayers. I covet your prayers for this retreat coming this week. So, I've been fasting. I don't know how long. I've been kind of quasi-fasting. You know, like... I think it's going to start water only starting tomorrow. <laughs> I got to get, I got to get somewhere with this, this thing. I got to tell Friday and I've never done where three right in a row like that. So I can't just show up with one and got to have them all three ready. So, all right, well, let's pick up. Hey, I want you guys to look at before we get, to, we're going to start in verse number 32 today of chapter 10, but right before we get there, let's look at verse 24. Cause I want to highlight something that I want to come back to. And it says, And the disciples were astonished at his word. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches? Somebody look at your neighbor and say, Trust in riches. To enter the kingdom of God. So the Bible says that money is the root of all kinds of evil. And actually, that's not what it says. It says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so money is an inanimate object, right? We all have to have it to live. And money itself is not evil. But the love of money is what Jesus said is the root of all kinds of evil. And so here, very similarly, Jesus in after this rich young ruler that we saw last week. And by the way, last week we, we touched on some major topics, right? Marriage. We talked, we talked about money. We talked about um, faith and trust. And so the rich young ruler, when he left, he went away sad because he trusted in his money. 
And Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who trusts in money to enter the kingdom of God. And money is a blessing. There's, there's, there's patriarchs of faith. Some of the greatest men, bi- b- biblical characters were wealthy. Abraham was a very wealthy individual, very blessed by God. But, but, and, and again, that's not the deal. The Paul says Paul was both wealthy at times and, and, and poor at times. And Paul said the issue is not whether you're wealthy or poor. The issue is that you find contentment in either. That you find joy in both. And that you don't trust in your riches. One of the curses of being very financially, um, doing well financially is that the bottom line is, and I've seen it, it's human nature, I wouldn't be any different. And so is that you trust in your money. And that's just the reality. And when you have a lot of money and you can buy a lot of things and you can write a check to solve a lot of problems and checks will solve a lot of problems. If you can write that check, the reality is the truth is you can solve a lot of problems. When you're poor, you pray a lot. When you're rich, you write a check. When you're poor, you pray. Lord, I don't know what I'm going to eat tonight. Lord, help me. And so, and there's blessings. And, but when you're poor, you steal. And so that's a curse of being poor is you steal because you're hungry and that's a sin. And so there's, there's, right, there's, there's pros and cons and both. And, you know, if you guys haven't experienced and you, you, you know, the, the poor thing, then just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take some heavy weight for you. Just give me your money and then um, you can experience it so you can see. But no, but the, there's no right or wrong, poor, wealthy, the, the, the biblical principles, be generous with what you have. And whether you have a little or a lot, trust in the Lord. And so remember that as we go on. And then let's pick it up. We're going to pick it up in verse number 32. And it says, now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them and they were amazed and they followed as they followed, they were afraid. And then he took the 12 aside again and he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. All right, so um, I'm going to camp on verse 32 for a minute. And this is just a setup verse. There's really no reason. There's really nothing in it. I read it a hundred times. I read it a couple times preparing throughout the week. I, I read commentaries and I, I, li- I listen to different um, sermons on these passages kind of in preparation for my messages and, um, and, and try to just seek the Lord. And um, nobody made any comment on this verse. And for whatever reason, and I didn't either until this morning, last minute, making some last minute notes. And I'm reading through this passage one more time. And this, this little piece of this one verse that really doesn't have any theology or doctrine or anything major that Jesus is teaching or saying. It's the narrative that sets up where they're going. God just says, hey, stop for a minute and take a look at this. You know, when we read the Bible, sometimes we read the Bible at 30,000 feet, right? You're, you're at 30,000 feet, you're in an airplane, and, and what, is, what, what can you see at 30,000 feet? Everything. And also nothing, because you, you, you can see, like, these things moving, and they're cars, right? Maybe you can see some things that are cars moving, and, but you have no idea what kind of car it is, what color it is. No, no detail, but you can see everything. And sometimes we read the Bible at 30,000 feet. And, and we're supposed to, right? You're just, you're just going through it. You're going to read First and Second Samuel this week, and you're going to go through the life of David and just read the narratives, and, and you're just taking in your daily bread, and, and you're eating, you're eating, you're eating. And that's, that's healthy in your Christian life, is to be taking in the Word of God like that. There's other times where you take the Bible at not 30,000 feet, but at, with, a, with a magnifying glass. And now not only can I see what color that car is, but I can see the dent and, and every little detail. And sometimes we study the word that way and we, we get into the Hebrew and the Greek and we, we break down words and meanings and, and, and what they say. And the reality is no matter how deep we get, the Bible says we'll only ever scratch the surface. It's the living word of God. 
It's living, breathing, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so I want to just camp on a couple things. The first one, it says they were going up to Jerusalem. Now, you always go up to Jerusalem. No matter where you are, you're going up to Jerusalem. And, and the Bible says about Jerusalem, you know what I love about Jerusalem? It, it says that it's the city of the great king. The Bible says about Jesus, it says the heaven is his, his throne and the earth is his footstool. And Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And so we have this amazing city that, that Jesus died in. He rose again. says he's coming back to it. And so there's this nostalgia. There's something special about Jerusalem. And Jesus needed a place, and this is the place that he chose. And every time in the Bible where Jerusalem is mentioned, where it's always going up. And the way God built Jerusalem, designed Jerusalem, it, it sits on a mountain with only valleys all the way around it. So no matter how you get to Jerusalem, no matter where you come from, you're going up to go to Jerusalem. Now, they were coming from the Galilee region. Jesus had and his disciples had been in Capernaum. If you know the geography of Israel, you'll know that the Sea of Galilee is in the north. The Dead Sea is in the south. And Jerusalem is in the south. So they're, they're in the north and they're heading south towards Jerusalem. So if you and I were in a car and we're heading south, what would we be saying? We're going down. But geography was not explained by north-south because if you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up. If you leave Tooele and you're on your way to Jerusalem, you're going up. If you leave France, Paris, L.A., anywhere in the world, and you're going to Jerusalem, you're upgrading. You're, you're going up. And, and so we're always going up to Jerusalem. The, um, you guys know, familiar with the term Zionism? With the Zionist regime, it's something they talk about. What does that mean when you hear that? You hear that on the news, you hear that on Fox News, you hear that on the TV. And, and, and even sometimes the enemies, oftentimes that's the term that, that Iran, that enemies of Israel will use um, about them. And they'll call them the Zionists or the Zionist regime. So Zionism or Zionists is um, people returning back to Israel. In 1945, there were no Jews living in Israel, right? Very few. And then in 1948, May 12th, 1948, the nation is reborn again and Zionism is alive and well. And there's this call to the Jews around the world to, to come back to Jerusalem. You know what they call that? The Zionism are coming back to Jerusalem. There's a Hebrew word that they use for it. It's called Aliyah. And Aliyah is, is a Hebrew word that means to go up. So you, I heard President Benjamin Netanyahu in a speech and he's talking to some American Jews that were students that were there visiting and he, he, he encouraged each one of them to make Aliyah or to come home or come back to Jerusalem, come back to Israel. And, and again, Aliyah means to go up. That's what it means. So we're always going up. And it says, and they were amazed and they followed. As they followed, they were afraid. Now, now Jesus is getting ready to tell them for the third time he's going to die. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be spit upon and betrayed. But he hadn't told them that yet. And they're on their way up to Jerusalem. And it says they were amazed and afraid. Why were they amazed and afraid? What does the Bible say? Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't tell us. So let me take a crack at it. So first of all, they, they, they did understand that there was trouble for Jesus in Jerusalem. You guys know the stories. The Pharisees were constantly trying to, to get him and hurt him. And, and they were following him. And they were first of all amazed, probably amazed at the fact that Jesus was willing to go back to Jerusalem. You guys know the stories. You remember the time when, when the Pharisees were at the point where they were going to grab Jesus physically and kill him. And the Bible says that Jesus passed through the midst of them and escaped. And they didn't know it. 
So whether God blinded the, whether he made Jesus go disappear and, and go through him where they couldn't see him, or that he was there in the flesh and walked right by him, and God just put a blinder on their eyes so they didn't realize that he had just slipped right out of their grasp. But, but they were ready at that point. They were going to kill him had they got a hold of him. And it wasn't his time to die. And, and the apostles no doubt knew that there was animosity, there was danger. Up in Capernaum, where they spent a lot of time in the northern part of Israel, I'm sure there was Pharisees there, but not, not like it would have been in Jerusalem. Much safer, much more relaxed. And so they're amazed that Jesus is going back into this danger. And it says they were afraid for the same reason. They were afraid because even before Jesus is about to tell them for the third time, the first two times he told them what happened. He's going to tell them a third time. Third time they're going to get it, right? Nope. Number three, they're out, right? Baseball, if they're playing baseball, strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out, right? If I put you in a room, four walls, all concrete, I give you a baseball and a bat and I put you in the room, how do you get out of the room? Hit the bat against the walls until they break or just throw the ball up three times? Strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out. So three times they missed it. And he's about to tell them the third time and it says they were afraid as, as they were there. And then it goes on and it says, Behold, we were going up a second time up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles and they will mock him and they will scourge him and they will spit upon him and they will kill him and the third day he will rise again. Let me tell you something about Jesus and his death. You can't say, and so many times around Christmas, they come out with all these whacked out TV programs about Jesus on the History Channel and A&E and Discovery Channel and Nat Geographics about who was Jesus and, you know, that he was some character or figure or, or, or good person who fell into the, the fate of the Roman crucifixion because of his, his popularity and because of his teachings and because he was like a, a Gandhi type who was a good person. And, you know, none of that can be true because this wasn't, the Bible says that Jesus's death was laid out from the foundations of the world. Well, let me tell you, Adam and Eve came after the foundations of the world. And so Jesus and God's plan of redemption for you and me was laid out before he even put Adam and Eve in the garden. He knew that his son one day would die on a cross in Jerusalem. Jesus not only knew that he was going to die, he tells him he's going to be crucified. He knows how he's going to die. How many of you guys can accurately predict when you're going to die? Okay, okay not only when you're going to die, how you're going to die. No hands, rightfully so. And, and it separates Jesus. And it speaks to the fact that Jesus' death and his life was prophesied beforehand from the God, the Father, for you because he cares and he loves you and he, he made a plan of salvation. What was the reason that Jesus would die on the cross? He died on the cross so that he could be a bridge between man and God, so that he could be a, a propitiation, a sub- propitiation, the substitute for your sins and my sins. And Jesus came, he died on the cross, and and it wasn't an accident. It was prophesied. He told the disciples three times before, and they just didn't get it. You know, there's some things in the Bible where you're like, you you just don't, you don't understand people. You don't understand the disciples. Like, how did you not get it? He told you very plainly, three times in English, I'm going to Jerusalem. Guys, listen, I'm going to die. They're going to spit on me. Jesus didn't teach like that. And he pulls you to the side and he says, hey, when I only get there, they're going to spit on me. They're going to scourge me and they're going to crucify me. 
And three days later, I'm going to rise. Like, how do they miss this stuff? So I think to myself, I say, okay, let's, let's, let's take it to, to today. It, it, can I be guilty of the same thing? Is there, is there something that God has been speaking to me that, that, that maybe I've missed and maybe try to apply it to work? And I guess at work, I could be guilty of the same thing. I think there's been times at work where, where my boss has given me clear, easy directions about something and I missed it or I didn't do it or I didn't follow through. And I think, how, how did they miss it so many times? And, and I think part of the reason they missed it was because of the end game. And, and in, their end game was totally different. And in their mind and from their study of the Old Testament, they were so, so fascinated and so set in the idea that Messiah, when Messiah comes, he's going to rule and reign. And that he would um, overthrow the Roman government and that he would rule and reign and that they would reign with him. And they were so impressed about being great. And, you know, and you go back. And so I went back and I looked at the other places where Jesus tells them this same thing. I'm going to die. And in Mark chapter nine, we have one. And it almost kind of like the same progression that we have here. He says, I'm going to die. Then they argue about who's the greatest because the end game is that they're going to rule and reign next to this guy. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. So they don't hear that stuff they don't want to hear. All they see is what they want and they miss what Jesus is telling them. And, and, and then in this chapter, same progression. I'm going to die, argue about who's going to be the greatest, followed by a lesson of Jesus about servanthood. In this chapter, he tells them what he's going to do. Two of them fight about who's going to sit at his right hand and who's going to be at his left, followed by a sermon of, of, about servanthood and about being a slave for Jesus. And so the, the same. And so how, how do we not miss it? And what is the lesson maybe that God wants to tell us? We're, we're going to get to it, but it's about being a servant of Jesus Christ, about being a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and that, you know, the end game for me is, is what? For me, it's heaven, right? I mean, that's kind of the motivating factor. That's kind of the... I mean, not, not, to, not to mention that some other things, but one day I'm going to stand before Jesus and I'm going to look him in the face, eye to eye. And for the first time, I'm going to see the eyes of perfect love. Somebody who has zero regret and ill will towards me. Somebody who has zero disappointment in me. For the first time, I'm going to see true love. And on that day, I want to have something to offer my Lord. That's, that's part of my end game. But here's the deal. I don't, I don't want to miss... And Jesus didn't want the disciples to miss because the end game was so much. They missed so much of what he was telling them because they were so focused on the end game. But, but I have to stay focused on heaven so that I can, I, I can be motivated to do those things. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and more abundantly. He told, he told them right after the rich young ruler came up that if you leave mother, father, brother, sister, wife, for my namesake, will I not repay you house, Life, brothers, sisters, mothers, a hundredfold in this life. And, and so, yeah, heaven is an end game for us. But th- there's life here on earth. There, there's life abundant. That's the great thing about Jesus and about serving God. Not only do we get to go to heaven, but the life that we live in following Jesus is a good life. It's a blessed life. It's a life that God promised would be an abundant life. So it goes on in verse 35 and it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. How nice would that be? You know, sometimes it's just the truth. You know, p- people sometimes struggle in their relationship with God and, and understand the Bible because they have a mentality that Jesus is some genie in a bottle. And you come and you rub the genie bottle and, and Jesus pops out and grants you three wishes. And that's a mentality we have about God. And until we figure out Jesus is not a genie in a bottle... 
that he's the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. And he's, he's the God of creation, a God of both wrath and love. That, that, that our mentality about God has got to change. He's not a genie in a bottle. And here his own disciples come to him and, and they say, Hey, Jesus, can you just grant us whatever we ask? Before he, they asked it. They want like a yes before they're going to ask it. You know what's funny is that Mark is kind of keeping it, playing it cool here. But in Matthew's gospel, we have this same story. And Matthew dimes these guys out and he tells us what really happened. They, they actually brought their mom in to have this conversation with Jesus. And so the, what's really happening here, which Mark, Matthew's not telling us who's talking, or Mark's not telling us who's talking, but it's actually James and John's mom who comes. So if you've got to go get your mommy to go to your boss to ask for a promotion, you've got issues. And, and what's such a trip about James and John is that these are the sons of thunder. These are the same two guys that they, when early in their ministry, right after Jesus called them, they went into the city and, and, and they didn't have a good reception. And nobody got, I'm not nobody, but a lot, a lot of stuff didn't happen. People weren't getting saved. Jesus wasn't doing a bunch of miracles. The people were just very ill-receptive to, to it. And so they left. And so James and John are like, Jesus, remember when Elijah called down fire on heaven and turned them into crispy critters? Let's do that to that city we just left. And Jesus is like, chill down, calm down, sons of thunder. And in jest, jokingly, we know Jesus had a sense of humor because sons of thunder is like a nickname he gave them that was in jest, that was joking, that was funny. And so they're, they're known as the sons of thunder. But what a radical transformation in the life of John, the God who, who's here, James and John, the one who wanted to call down fire on heaven. He went on and he wrote the gospel of John. He wrote book of Revelation. He wrote first, second, third John. And, and he's known to this day as the, the disciple of love. And his whole ministry and his whole writings is all centered around love, love, love. How do you go from wanting just to turn people into crispy critters and call down fire in heaven and kill them because they wouldn't agree to, to being the apostle of love? But Jesus had so radically changed his life. And Jesus so radically changes people's lives. And, and so it says, They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, nope, sure, we can do that. <laughs> it was like, like being, you know, I'm 20 years old, 22 years old, and Lydia's dad comes to me and he says, God's called you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Are you ready to do that? Nope, I can do that. I'm ready. <laughs> Dummy, you have no idea what that means. You know, you dumb kid. And, and they just, no, yeah, we can do that. We can, no, you can't. You don't even know what that means. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and, and with the baptism that I am baptized with. James was killed with the sword, recorded for us in the book of Acts. Um, John, the other one, is the only apostle who died of old age. He's the only one that didn't die a martyr. He was, he was dipped in a vat of oil, as was a, a, a torture in, uh, uh, that they would use on the, uh, on the early church. He was dipped in the oil. They brought him out and just like... Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they came out of the fiery furnace and their clothes didn't smell like smoke, he wasn't burned. They exiled him to the island of Patmos. And there he wrote the book of Revelation. And there Jesus showed up and gave him the revelation, which we have today as the, the book of Revelation. And it says in verse number 40, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. So Jesus said, I, I, I can't give that to you. It's already prepared for somebody else. So, sorry guys, but that's, that's where the position that he reserved for my wife. She's worthy. No, who is that? Where is that? Just curious. What, what, 
my, the way my mind thinks, I'm like, so who, who has God reserved? Is it the Apostle Paul? Now, if I'm picking, I'm thinking it's Paul and probably Daniel. To me, Daniel, maybe Joseph. Only a couple of people in the Bible. Paul does have recorded sins, but um, Daniel and Joseph have no recorded sins and huge patriarchs. But it's reserved for somebody, but doesn't tell us who. In verse 42, it says, But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So now Jesus calls them to himself after James and John come, and he tells them, Sorry, guys, that's not going to work. And then he says, Hey, guys, come here. He says, Now I want to tell you that um, you know that the, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. The disciples are probably going, Oh, this is good stuff. Write that down. Okay, we got to lord it over them. And then he says, and they have, they exercise great authority. Like, ooh, this is getting better. Exercise great authority. They think they're getting, you know, this lesson from Jesus about how to rule. And then Jesus calls and he says, yet it shall not be named among you. Oh, oh they got to cross out the notes. That's not what Jesus wanted them to do. They're not to lord it over or rule over each other. And he says, but whoever desires to become great among you shall become your servant. Oh, again. The triangle, the, you know, success is a pyramid, right? And, and if you're successful, where are you? You're in the top of that pyramid. And, and that pyramid is made up of all the people that you are over the top of, that you conquered, that you're stepping on, that you're, you're climbing over to reach the top. In the corporate world, you want to have the office in the corner with the, with the view of both sides and the big windows. And, you know, then you've arrived and people working for you and servants and um, and Jesus takes that pyramid of success and he turns it upside down. And he says that if successful people are not those that are on the top that stand on everybody's shoulders, but they're those that are on the bottom and, and those that support other people. And that word servant can be translated several ways. The, the Greek word is doulos, which technically is a bond slave. And it's a slave. It's, it's, not, it's, a, it's just a slave that has no rights. It's a, and that's what Jesus said, to be a slave, to be a servant. And this whole concept is, is so different to the world. And that's why Jesus said the Gentiles do it this way. They lord it over and they exercise authority, but it not, should not be so among you. He's talking to you, Christian. He's talking to you in here today, Christian, that it should not be so among you. That your heart should be to, to be a servant or a slave, a bondservant. Another way that that word is translated is an under rower. And so an under rower, you know, it's is what it says it. it's the guy on the boat that's on the underneath where the you know the sweat shop is and you know he's rowing and so the people on the top of the deck that are you know drinking the drinks with the little umbrellas in them and they're they're on their way to hawaii so they can have a good time but in order for them to do that there has to be a guy on the bottom rowing and under rowing you know the cool thing about being an under rower is that if you're if the people on the top if you're if you're rowing them to hawaii guess who gets to go to hawaii you too Everybody on the boat. And, and, and in Christian service, and that's what Jesus is laying out, that if we, if we serve other people, yet if you find a way, if you're hurting or if you've gone through something, you take your pain and, and God turns it into a platform now that you can stand on to share with other people, to change other people's lives. And, and, and if you'll get past and get your eyes off yourself and your own problems and, and you'll serve somebody else, you're depressed, you're hurting, Go find somebody else who's hurting worse than you and begin to love on them and begin to serve them and you'll find victory. You'll find joy. You've lost someone in your life to a tragic death. Then go find somebody else who's going through a death and a loss and, and minister to them and love on them and help them and serve them. 
Because in being a slave and in being a servant, as Jesus called you to be and and told you to be in the wisdom of God, the the result is that you're going to find what you're looking for. You're going to be blessed. You're going to find joy. You're going to find happiness. You're also going to get to Hawaii, even though you're serving and you're an under rower. I seen this little video this week and I probably won't do it much justice trying to share it to you, but it illustrates this point pretty good. And there's a guy and he's kind of, you know, he's in the desert little stick figure things and you know where you flip the thing like that as it goes by and this guy's in the desert and he's um needing water and he's like arguing and fighting with god and he's angry and he's banging on the ground to get water and 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 then he just finally gets so angry and he looks up and there's a water faucet in front of him coming right out of the desert ground but next to the water faucet is this like Vegas style sign with like a girl on it. And you, you get the impression that there's something wrong or bad about that watering hole that he, that he probably shouldn't go there. And, and he wants this water so bad that he begins to, to just go towards it. And then the hand of God picks him up and turns him the other direction. And the other direction, there's no water. And, and it's cactus and it's, it's hilly and it's... You know, this way is flat and there's water and this is way, way, way worse looking to the flesh. And, and, and so he, he, he just turns back around and he heads back towards that water faucet and that watering hole that's bad that he's not supposed to be there. And the hand of God picks him up again and points him in the right direction. And he just turns again and back to the water hole. And the hand of God comes and jumps in his way and he climbs over the top of it. The next time he's running faster so the hand doesn't quite get down and he slides underneath it. And he gets to the water and he turns the faucet on and nothing comes out. And he begins to work on it. He begins to spend his time and he's laboring and he's trying to fix it and he's reinventing it. And he's doing all this work. And he can't get any water. And he turns it on again after all the work. One little drop of water comes out and hits his tongue. And and then the scene goes to the area that God was trying to take him in that that was cactusy and hilly and wrong. And you go just a little bit over these few little hills and you get to the other side and it opens up into this beautiful oasis with waterfalls and people hanging out and having fun and drinking and, you know, and and all the water and everything that you need is there. And sometimes it's that way with God, right? Sometimes the direction he points us in on the onset, the flesh, it doesn't make all that much sense. But in trusting and being obedient to the direction that God's called you to walk in, God will bless you. And God will bless you. And what he's called you to is to be a servant. He's called you to serve one another. Now, you know, we have in here, I want to tell you, and I want to just challenge you a little bit, that you're to serve. You're to serve. And if you've been a Christian a long time, and you come in and you've been been serving God a long time, and you get upset and you say, well, nobody talked to me. And and nobody served me. You know what I'm going to tell you? Shut up. Save it. Like, if you, you have no excuse. Like, I, I need to take you to the 477 places in the Bible where it's taught that we're to serve and we're to be a servant. And Jesus was a servant and Jesus washed feet as an example. When he got up from washing feet, he looked at the disciples. He said, now you go and do likewise. Now, if we have somebody that's brand new and they come into the church and they, they don't understand the culture, they don't know Jesus. Yes, we are to serve them. And if they get upset because somebody didn't talk to them or, or, or love on them or serve them, then yeah, we're wrong. And we need to love and serve. But as we mature in Christ, there does come a point where the Bible says, it's not cute for you to act like a baby anymore. It's not cute for you to drink a bottle when you're 15 years old. 
It's time to go get a steak. It's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to start serving. And once as a, as a family of believers here, we start looking across the aisle to see who we can love, who we can serve, whose needs we can meet. And we come to church, not only to receive, you should come to receive. You should come that God's Holy Spirit would speak to you and touch you and change your life. And that you would leave here with challenges to be more Christ-like every Sunday you come. But also you should come with, with not a, a serve me, serve me, serve me, serve me mentality, but how can I serve somebody else today? How can I be a part of the solution? How can I, who can I help? Who can I love on? Who can I invite for dinner? Who can I welcome into my friend's circle in, in our church? You know, who, who, who looks like somebody that, you know, needs, needs a friend and needs an invite and needs to be loved on? And when we start serving each other, healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. And then when we see a new face come in, like we're fighting to get there, right? To, to love and to serve and to meet the needs of somebody that's new. And then I don't have to have the conversation with any of you. Wow, my seat was hard and the, it was too hot in there and the music was too loud. All right, check it out. I, I, I seriously, I, I love you. So I'm going to definitely, I'm going to fix the cushion on your seat. I'm going to adjust the temperature for you. I'm going to turn the music down a little bit. Like, that's cool. Like, I'm not, we can do that. That, that. I don't have any problem with doing things to meet your needs. I want you to be comfortable. I really do. I, I, we, we've tried to work hard to make your seat comfortable, to keep the temperature where it's comfortable, do all those things. And all that stuff is cool. And we'll adjust all that as long as we have the heart that, that it's about serving Jesus, right? And serving other people. And that Jesus called us to be servants, right? All right. And then just to sum it up, verse 30, 44, Jesus gives us in two verses, 44 and 45. And whoever you desires to be first, you shall be, there's that word again, slave of all. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus says, if anybody has the right to be served or to come and get served, it would have been me. And I didn't even come that way. I came and served. I came and washed your feet. I came and died on a cross. So how much more should you serve and be a slave? And in verse 46, it says, And they came to Jericho as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, a great multitude. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat on the road begging. So here we have the story of blind Bartimaeus. This blind man who we don't know what his name was. Just this very area of, of Jericho where many blind people would be the blind um, hospital type of thing in Jesus's day would have been there. And so for you say, what do you mean? You don't know his name. It says right there, blind Bartimaeus. No. Then it tells you right after the son of Timaeus. All Bartimaeus means is bar means son of Timaeus. So all we're told is that what his dad's name was the son of Timaeus, just like Barabbas. We don't know what Barabbas's name was. Because Barabbas is son of Abbas. So Bar just means son of. So we have the son of Timaeus. And he's there and he's blind. It says, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out saying, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this, this term that he uses, son of David, is a, a term of, of Messiah or faith or believing in who Jesus was. You know, remember when Peter had his crowning moment there at Caesarea Philippi and Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they, they gave the answers and Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. 
So God had spoken and ministered and given Peter this answer and this faith the same way he touches your life and my life. And with blind Bartimaeus, this is what, this is what happened to him somewhere along the lines. He, he didn't get this. He had a faith that the Father had given him that he understood who Jesus was and, and it didn't come from men and he speaks out with this term of faith when he calls Jesus and he received Jesus as the Messiah when the issue in Jesus' day was so many of the Jews would not receive him as their Messiah. And blind Bartimaeus received him as Messiah and he calls him such. And then many warned him and they said, shut up, blind dude. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and he commanded him to be called. And then they, they, com- they called the blind man saying to him, be of good cheer. Rise, he is calling you. So Jesus, or first of all, they're like, hey, you know, you're nobody. Shut up. Don't bother him. And then Jesus stops and says, hey, bring that guy here. And then, you know, these, these, these yes men, these yahoos, they're, oh, their, their whole attitude changes. Hey, hey, come on, be of good cheer. He's calling you. You're welcome now. Like, come check out Jesus. So... And it says, so when they told him, they said, come on. He says, he threw aside his garment and he rose and he came to see Jesus. Such amazing faith. Jesus is going to say, your faith has made you well. Go, uh, you know, go and be healed. And Jesus is going to commend and say his faith was something so amazing. And so, you know, what's cool about this is that Bartimaeus threw off his garment. You know what Bartimaeus had in life besides that garment? nothing he was blind very very possibly was homeless that garment is what kept him warm at night that garment is what kept him from dying and freezing to death in the middle of the night it was his bed it was his blanket it was it was everything that he had his possessions probably kept in the pockets of it and and when jesus called him it took such amazing faith to throw off the one possession that he had in life and he was blind it wasn't like yeah, and it was a big crowd and there was all kinds of people. And, and he, he wasn't just setting it down to come back for it later. He was throwing it off because there was, he was never going to come back to it again. It was gone. And, and he knew the only way he was going to survive that night is if Jesus touched and healed his eyes. And Jesus had to touch and heal his eyes that day. And he had such faith to believe that Messiah was going to touch him that he took the one possession in this world that he had and he gave it up. And, and such a, a dichotomy right between the 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 rich young ruler in the early part of the chapter who would give nothing for God, who wouldn't sell what he had to follow Jesus. And this guy takes all that he has and he takes off his garment and it says, so Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I might receive my sight. So when Jesus asks a question like that, what do you want me to do for you? Let me ask you guys, what do you guys... What's the answer today for you? Say it in your head. Say it out loud if you want. Say it in tongues if you feel like it. Say it like a pirate. I don't care. But um, what, what, what do you want me to do for you? Well, if Jesus says that to you, what do you want? Love you? I'm not asking for answers. You just say them to yourself. You can give them if you want. But, you know, that's what Jesus says to this guy. What do you want? And to, to this situation, you, you might think like, well, duh. We, we know what he wants. He, he needs to be healed. He needs to be touched. He's blind. And and when Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. When God showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm sorry, in the Garden of Eden, and he said, Adam, Adam, where art thou? Was that because he was playing hide-and-go-seek and he just really didn't know where Adam was? He knew where Adam was, right? 
It, was, it wasn't like because he didn't have the answer. Jesus knew what the answer was. But Jesus wanted and wants us, I think, to articulate and to verbalize and to speak to him and tell him what our needs are and what our desires are. And it's something that he does for us. He's looking for something in your heart. He's trying to get it out of you. He's trying, he's trying to pull out what, what, what it is that, you know, is, is key in your life. And so for Bartimaeus, he asked him, and he asked him to articulate how, how he, he's feeling in this situation. And he says, Rabboni, and Rabboni is a, is a cool way of saying teacher, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's have the worship team come on up as we close, and we'll close in a song. And it says, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. So that another case of someone who follows Jesus. And so as he comes up, he, he's following the Savior. You know this phrase, you'll see this little phrase in the Bible. You see it in the, in the Gospels oftentimes where Jesus says here at the end, what does he say? He says, go your way, your faith has made you well. And, and you see these people who have this faith in Jesus... And, and then Jesus recognizes it and he blesses them as a result of that faith. And I oftentimes say, God, can you give me some of that? I, I want some of that faith. And, and, and you know, and then maybe, maybe I get it and God does something amazing. And, and I go, yeah, that was me. See that faith I had? And then I read the passage that says, you know, even the faith is a gift that I give you. You can't even take credit for that. But wanting and just trying to grow in our faith. And God, the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Amen? So be in your word. Ready? Read your Bible and pray every day. Let's stand and worship the Lord. Father God, we come before you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And God, we thank you for the gospel of Mark. I thank you for just the power of chapter 10. And Lord, I pray that that we could um, just continue to read through it and and, and read on to 11. And Lord, that, that that you would grow and speak to us through it. God, I pray if there's anybody in here today that that doesn't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. And Lord, that today they would come and receive Jesus. And so I want to give everybody in here an opportunity this morning. And I'd ask that you guys would pray with me out loud and together. And as I lead you in this prayer, it's a prayer of salvation. It's a prayer of faith. And yet there's no magic in the words. There's only magic in your heart that surrenders to Jesus. But I I want to give you that opportunity before you leave this morning to surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ. So would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that you died and rose again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. If anybody would like individual prayer, We'll be up front to pray for you as we sing this last song. God bless you guys. Have a great week.